from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a Renaissance woman who spans the gamut of creative writing. She's a writer of novels, short stories, graphic novels, screenplays, and teaches English and creative writing as a professor at Georgia Military College. She's joining me today to talk about her new novel, Poser. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Nevada McPherson. Nevada, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you. Thank you very much for being here. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed your novel, Poser, and uh, looking forward to getting into not only the craft, but also the psychology of the storyline with you. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll do my best. (laughs) So, um, one thing I will say is that your style is very unique, and I'm very detail-oriented, almost to a fault, so I always try to categorize things. So would you classify your book as maybe, say, like neo-noir, or what would you say? I think so. When I started writing it, I just wanted it to be a good story, and it had elements of romance, it had elements of noir, it has a little bit of crime fiction and some other stuff, and I thought, You know, I was just thought, I just want to write a good story. I'm not worried about that now. But when you start trying to find a publisher and stuff like that, you do have to be concerned about those things. But then I just thought, well, you know, different types of noir have different elements in them. So it's a noir. So that's what I wanted it to be as I went along. So is this the first novel you've written or have you written previous? I've written, well, I have another manuscript uh, kind of in a different genre. Um, but this is the first I've done some graphic novels that I've mainly done screenplays, but this is the first like prose novel where I, I felt like I was finding my prose voice. Um, and, you know, I've written some nonfiction pieces and stuff like that. But this is yeah, this is my first real novel as far as a prose novel. OK. Was there uh, anything, any kind of confluence of events or anything going on in your life that kind of gave you that inspiration? Like, you know, it's time to write a novel. I think so. Well, I had this as a screenplay a long time ago. I've been working on it for a really long time as a feature length screenplay. And then I got to thinking, I started thinking of other angles, other storylines that could go along with it. 
And I decided, well, maybe I'll adapt it like as a series, you know, as a pilot, as a TV series. And when I started trying to do a pilot series script. And and I'm sorry, when you say pilot, do you mean like? Like the first episode of a TV show that you could submit to contests, you know, and stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, And so I thought, well, I'm going to try doing it, you know, as that. And then I started thinking of other things. I think I started getting into the backgrounds of the characters and some of the storyline stuff. And so then I decided I'm going to try it as a novel and see. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with this thing called NaNoWriMo. Um, it's every November. It's um, It's been going on for a long time. But the aim is to get I think it's 50,000 words. Uh, like a rough draft of a novel. And a lot of people participate in it online and you usually try to do about 1500 words a day. And I thought, well, I'm going to use that as a way to kind of you know, get started on a, a novel for it. And um, and so I did that. And by the time I got to 50,000 words, it was already I could tell it was going to go on way beyond that. So I thought, you know, this has the makings of a novel. But when I um when I did that, I thought, well, and adapting a screenplay, how hard can that be, you know, and make it into, <laughs> but it, it was, it's hard. I imagine. <laughs> it is hard. And by the time I got through what I had for the screenplay, it wasn't, you know, very far into the novel. And so, but then I started adding things. And so it went on from there and it got, it got really long. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so how long would you say it took from, I guess, inception to publication? I actually wrote the screenplay a really long time ago. I got the idea for the screenplay like back in the early 2000s. Okay. And, um, and I worked on it as that for a really long time. And so it's been in the making, like the main characters for a really long time. The only character that wasn't in the original screenplay who's become quite major in the novel and will continue to be is Randy. Randy came about. (laughs) That is a complicated man. (laughs) Yes, he is. And he came about, you know, when you're doing a a pilot, like a TV episode, you notice when you're watching TV, the first five minutes is like the teaser. You know, you have to have that in the script. Like that's part of it. And I thought Randy was originally just in the teaser of the pilot. And then I thought, well, Randy, Randy could be a recurring character, but he just took off from there. I mean, Mm -hmm. just like gangbusters took off from there. And so he became major, major, which I'm glad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I want to get into is his character, because he's the one that really just like, wait, what? I know. know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as far as. Going back to the classification of like neo noir, mm-hmm. as far as that's concerned, I mean, you've got you know, there's there's romance, there's kind of this uh, transgressive, dysfunctional family dynamic. Yeah. There's there's crime, you know, there's drug dealing, mm-hmm. there's even to the Russian mob, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so so like, what in particular, what elements really drew you into that genre? Well, the romance part of it, and. And just the noir elements, you have characters who are kind of liminal. You know, I guess that's part of the transgressive thing, too. They mean to do the right thing. They take detours. It gets murky you know, and things like that. So I think just those elements of it that you find in a lot of noir and those drew me to it. And I just I'm big on character driven things. And I think I just became really interested in these characters 
And the more I thought about them, the more I kind of got into their backgrounds and maybe what makes them tick and things like that. And so I think the characters first and and their relationships and their interrelationships with each other and each, you know, kind of group and stuff like that that's in the book. Yeah, I like how complex you make the characters in the sense of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of stories, they want the character to be in this particular state, but then learn from their mistakes and progress forward. But I mean, you've got characters that like just can't stop sabotaging themselves. Yeah, You've got characters that react to uh, trauma in ways that is completely believable. I can relate to a lot of the stuff like with my job and, and uh, mm-hmm. personal relationships. So it's it's very realistic. It's not that whitewashed, you know. Friends become enemies, and you know yeah. that kind of. Because <laughs> you think they might, you know, remain enemies, but then I mean, well, there's this thing too of you know what's in their shared interest, what they kind of you know, and they do take detours, and that's you know that's part of the, the noirish aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and they grew and changed as I wrote the book. As I'm going to continue in the series, I can tell you know the relationships and the characters evolve. So that's really exciting for me. I like to kind of see where that takes me Mm -hmm. and takes the story and the characters. Yeah. The concept of being a poser is a really interesting story dynamic. Um, It seems like the act of being a poser isn't exclusive to Ambrose though. Right. I would would say Mike, Jessica, Randall, Benny, and probably Rajit all qualify. So where did you get the inspiration for this? I would almost call it basis for the book. Yeah. At first, Ambrose was the main poser. And as I went on, I realized they all were (laughs) posers in their own (laughs) way, just like everybody is. It's like you show a certain side of yourself to the world and then there's a backstage side. And, you know, I think that's pretty true for everybody. Social media. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Who you are on social media as opposed to, you know, who you are in real life and all that. But one thing that inspired me is... um, my husband used to teach uh, kind of a, a debate camp, a high, kind of a high school course out at Stanford during the summers. And we went there for, for a few years and would spend time at Stanford. We lived in the dorms there while that was going on. And I got to kind of walk around Palo Alto. And I really I fell in love with that whole area. And I love Northern California and all that. But I started realizing just walking around town and especially like walking around the campus, if you kind of knew your way around, it's like there's so many little hallways and kind of little hidden spaces. You could like hang out here and kind of learn your way around and become a part of the community in a way without really being a part of the community. Do you know what I mean? Like you could hang like out not there, even being a student. not even being a student. <laughs> you could look like a student and walk around. Would that be considered college crashing? Or I, Yes, I think it would. And so I thought you could do that. You know, there were little, which there's, it's probably changed now. Like I know they've changed a lot of the dorms um, to high rises and stuff like that. When I was there, there were still a lot of little two story dorms with little basements with all kinds of little areas and like TV rooms, laundry rooms, you know, bathrooms, stuff like that. And I thought, and sometimes, you know, it was just like you could go in. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, somebody could do that, you know. Um, but like I said, it's probably changed a lot since then. But maybe a few years later, I used to live in New Orleans and I saw an article in the Times-Picayune about uh, this young woman who did just that. 
I mean, she kind of just started hanging out there and she kind of got into a room there, had a roommate. You know, she was doing stuff there. And then it was find out she's not a student here. <laughs> how, did she, how did she get in here? But I thought that's what I used to say. Somebody could do that. And somebody did. Uh, and it made the news. You know, that sure was national news. <laughs> but, um, but that just, you know, and then it kind of gets into just like you said, pretending to be one thing and then you are something else. And then even discovering that you are something something else that you never thought, you know, maybe as Jessica gets to know Ambrose further, it's kind of, she discovers things about herself and, you know, stuff like that. So it kind of went on from there. Yeah. It's funny. I had a, um, a guest on the other day, it hasn't been aired yet, but, uh, Judith Sonnet, she's a a splatterpunk author. So it's a lot of, a lot of extreme violence, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff that really makes you cringe, Mm -hmm. but Honestly, I was cringing the same way in that scene in Poser where it's the first party that Ambrose goes to with Jessica, uh-huh. where, where everybody's like asking him questions. Like, I think he yeah. gets introduced to a college professor for some yes. reason. That made me so uncomfortable because I could just I guess maybe I have a lot of empathy. I was yeah. I could just put myself in his place. It's it's, it's strange. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's like, you know, and that was I don't know it. He had to think on his feet, mm-hmm. and I think in the description, he tenses when he hears like who this person is, and this person who's introducing him knows Jessica, mm-hmm. but doesn't know all the deal on his background, and you know, and it's like, uh, you know, because he's trying to, he's starting to get just comfortable enough that he lets his guard down a little bit, but he's still got to keep his guard up, and so he's kind of like, you know, he doesn't want to say the wrong thing, and that can make you say the wrong thing when you're worried about that too much, when you're all stressed out. It, it's just, ah, uh, it is stressful. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you found it cringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> difficult. Well, yeah, I wanted it, it's prickly. It's a prickly situation, and it yeah, was. yeah, no, you you conveyed the gravity <laughs> of the situation very skillfully. <laughs> oh, <thank> you. Yeah. <laughs> he also kind of, you know, uh, he finds himself like he's nervous. And yet then it's like this guy kind of taps into some kind of, you know, anger kind of thing, too, where he kind of then he's like, did I say too much? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny how you do dip into a very noir-esque characteristic of storytelling when you let the audience into kind of the introspective nightmare that's uh-huh. going on in Ambrose's head like it's like oh god what do I say what do I do you know like uh, just the the constant stress he's under ruminating yeah. in his head yeah mm-hmm. and that's something I don't know he hadn't really planned to have to do all that as far as pretend but you know his friend kind of gets that all set up and it's hard to get out of it once you start it you know, once you get into that, how do you then, okay, without being, you know, considered what, a poser, a liar, you know, yeah. all those kind of things, too. Yeah, best mm-hmm. thing to do is lock himself in the pool. Ride house, it but, out, yeah. And uh, hanging out with an attractive woman is hard to pass up. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to yeah. do it. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> so that's one thing I found uh, very interesting with your book was that the characters didn't really follow the uh, trajectory of personal development that I expected they would. Uh, an example would be the character of Officer Burke, who in the beginning seemed like kind of a unredeemable scumbag. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the end of the book, I kind of liked him. Mm-hmm. He seemed like he was kind of an all right guy. And then Jessica, of course, who I at, at the beginning considered pure as the driven snow. By the end, she's like, man, she's 
I'm getting like an evil bitch vibe coming from uh, her. Like, well, what's happening? <laughs> well, <laughs> was that a was that a deliberate tactic that you had in mind for the characters, or did they just evolve? They like evolved. That? Okay, they did. Um, I mean, I didn't know that how Randy would turn out to be, but it's like the more I kind of got to know Randy. I mean, Randy has been through some stuff, and you know, and he's kind of you know taken on this armor, you know, himself against the world, but. Um, you know, you start to kind of chip away at that and you do find a different kind of guy than what you think at first underneath all that. Jessica, I think she starts to get, you know, she's kind of been trying to be good you mm-hmm. know, for so long. And, and things that she thought were solid in her life turn out not to really be. And I think that kind of chips away at her in a way where she, I don't know, she could come off as selfish you know, <laughs> um, and She's going to be changing some more as time goes on, too, kind of as she discovers things about herself and what she really, really wants. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really expect her to evolve in the way that she did, in the direction that she did, but it happened. And, you know, so. So you kind of talked about uh, the future, Jessica. Do you already have kind of a plan for the trajectory? Or are you still of the mindset like, well, this is the direction I'm going to take her, but we'll see what happens. I kind of have a plan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she she'll probably go along, you know, more or less. Not to get any yeah, spoiler alerts. I, I understand, but curious, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> tell me what happens. <laughs> she'll start. She'll start doing some soul searching as time goes on, which she she kind of is doing, working. She, there's a lot of impulsiveness right now with a lot of the stuff that she's doing. Um, but uh, you know, as things go on and other things happen, she'll start to do more soul searching too. So she, I feel there's a curve with her right now, but there, there'll be another curve. And I I don't, I like characters to stay with what motivates them to be true to character is really important to me. Like in TV shows and or books or movies, things that I watch and I want it to be, I want to be true to these characters and what they're going through and experiencing, but there's more in store for her. (laughs) It seemed like she had a boot on her neck for so long that once it was taken off, she kind of is now passively lashing out. Yes. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so who would you say your writing influences are? Well, gosh, there's so many. That's a hard question. Um, I get. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Tennessee Williams. And, you know, he's a playwright, but he also wrote fiction too. But um, I'm a huge fan of Tennessee Williams. And I like Flannery O'Connor, who's from Savannah, but she lived in Milledgeville. She didn't wrote most of her stories in Milledgeville. Um, you know, she's the author of, there was a collection in one of her most famous short stories, um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And a lot of her stuff I had never realized. I mean, I thought of it, it's Southern Gothic for sure. Um, but it's also very noir. Love Southern Gothic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so. I mean, that's almost what I consider Southern Gothic is Southern noir. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. And I um, I think now that, you know, I've been reading more of her work and kind of learning more about her, I've come to a new appreciation of her work. But let me see. Carson McCullers, who's also from Georgia, she kind of writes in a Southern Gothic vein. She's kind of from the same era as them. Um, I've been thinking lately about I read a book by T.C. Boyle uh, a few years ago called A Friend of the Earth. And with all the things going on right now with climate and temperature and all just the the things going on, I've been thinking a lot about his uh, his book, Friend of the Earth, uh, and I want to read some more of his work, too. I'm, I really enjoyed his book. Um, but then, then there are lots of new authors that I'm trying to get to know better, learn their work, you know, so. Mm-hmm. 
It's funny, anytime I hear somebody mention uh, Tennessee Williams, Mm -hmm. like for the longest time, I thought he was a novelist. Mm -hmm. I'm not really familiar with his work, but I guess his his plays, I guess, are just so literary that people talk about him in that way that would make you think he's a novelist. Yeah. Streetcar Named Desire. I mean, there there are a lot of plays that I love. Streetcar Named Desire is my all-time favorite play. And if you get me started on that, I could talk on that for a long time. <laughs> but actually, I mean, the play is brilliant and lots of his other, his other plays, um, Night of the Iguana, I also love. But I love the play Streetcar Named Desire, but um, I think I gained a new appreciation of that. I took a philosophy of film course years ago. Oh, God, that sounds awesome. And the professor <laughs> at LSU, the professor um, talked about how he, well, he was going to make the argument, this is the most philosophical film of all time. And people were like, what, really? And he said, I'll show you. And he said, "You with the characters of Blanche and Stanley, you have two just opposing worldviews. And the whole play is about that clash of worldviews. Um, and then you have kind of the character in the middle, Stella, who's married to Stanley, uh, Blanche's sister. She's the prize kind of that they're both fighting for. But And he talks just all the um, the symbolism of light and dark and all these things that just kind of go in, went into it. And even just the editing and a lot of the just the proxemics, you know, in the film. But the play and film, I'm, I'm a big fan of. I think in my next... Um, installment or my next eucalyptus lane novel i might reference it at some point <laughs> I, I referenced uh, bernard shaw i think a little bit and uh henry miller and, and poser so um henry miller is another one of my favorite authors i really like his work uh, i, I kind of got interested in him in college and read a bunch of his books and um, i had revisited right before i think i started writing poser i had revisited um, some of his work and some uh, other writers talking about his work. And that got me fired up too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You, you kind of stoked my interest when you mentioned philosophy of film, that sounds yes. like something I would have loved to. Uh... I love it. <laughs> it's so interesting. I taught art and craft of film uh, for several years at Tulane uh, as an adjunct uh, professor at uh, Tulane school of continuing studies. And so I had certain films that, um, would watch over and over and over again and analyze them with the class. And it was always, there's some films that no matter how many times I see them, and some of them I've seen a lot, (laughs) but I never get tired of them because I see something new each time. And when I watch them and discuss them with classes and with students, there's always things that I learn, you know, that kind of jar me out of my way of thinking maybe. And that it's just always fun to kind of rediscover and discover things about some of my favorite films. I've seen an opera of Streetcar Named Desire and also a ballet of Streetcar Named Desire. And the ballet, there's a scene, you know, she likes to take hot baths all the time just to get clean. Um, But there's a scene where Blanche in the ballet is in a bathtub and she's the bathtub's kind of moving around the state. It's a very fantastical scene. It's hard to describe. But she the, the song Paper Moon is playing and she sings that in the I think it's in the play. but I know it's in the film. Um, there's just only a paper moon, you know, and I was over a cardboard sea and all this. It's like this world of imagination that she lives in. Stanley's purpose is to just destroy that. There's a line in the streetcar that's one of my favorite lines where I think it's Mitch, but she, Mitch says something to her and she he says, well, you, you didn't tell the truth. And she says, no, she says, uh, I, I didn't tell the truth. 
sometimes I, I don't tell truths. I do misrepresent things, you know, and if that's a sin, then let me be punished for it. But she's like, yeah, I weave, you know, I try to live in magic, like to, to block out the cruel reality. And that's just, that's what I do, you know, and it's kind of, um, I, I kind of garbled it, but it's like, well, you know, the concept of just, I'm trying to create this better reality because yeah. the real reality is just so, um, is so cruel and, um, unpleasant. And her past is a lot of it and just the difficulties that her family's gone through and things that weren't her fault, but then choices that she made that she's having to pay for and just all these things she's trying to start afresh. And it's like Mm. Stanley's just won't let her. (laughs) I guess that professor was his contention that Stanley stood for like brutal reality. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Because and it's ironic because talking about posers, because Stanley is all about, well, I got to wise somebody up. I got to tell them the truth. But then in the end, he's all about a lie and, um, you know, the things that happen in the play and what he does to her. And he's not telling the truth. And at the end, in the opera version of it, I'll never forget this scene, but it's like Blanche has been the one, you know, she's been shown to be a liar. But in the end, she's the only one that does tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And she walks away, you know, when she says, I've always been dependent on the kindness of strangers. And she That's walks away. <laughs> yeah. And she walks away. The doctor, they're taking her off to a mental hospital. Um, and she is the only one of the characters, all the ones who are all about reality and Stanley's just cruelty and all that. But she walks away with her head held high. And throughout the whole production, she's kind of been, you know, she's kind of had her head down. But she walks away with her head held high. And all the other characters turn and hang their head mm-hmm. and the background went to red. And then you've got the silhouette of like the French quarter apartment there. Mm-hmm. And it was like, <laughs> and that was, it. it's like she, she, in the end, she was the only one telling the truth and everyone else was living a lie. And, you know, it was just ooh, that heavy stuff, you know, and that's, Tennessee Williams deals with difficult, heavy things, but just uh, his writing is just so beautiful and lyrical and just the way he compassion for his characters and things like that, I think is just amazing. I can tell you're a very engaging professor. Oh, well, you're, thank you. Your students, <laughs> I'm an your students probably, probably love going to your classes. I, don't know. <laughs> I talk a lot. <laughs> well, you're very engaging and very passionate about what you're talking about. Oh, so well, imagine. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, sorry, sorry to get off on the Tennessee William in the weeds. It's just I told you, you be careful if you got me started on street. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I just I couldn't resist. Like when I I, I heard um, one of the authors I interviewed was talking about a course had something to do with I think it was the psychology of psychopaths in film or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I just glommed onto that. I was like, wait, 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 tell me about that. What? That's yeah, available. Why, yeah. Where was that? So when I hear people mention classes like you just did, I just want it to hear is more. Interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, and it just, you know, and then you can apply a lot of that stuff to all your favorite, you know, films. You could make gives you a fresh perspective on some things. That's what happened with me with like philosophy of film. I like to write film reviews and different things, but I, I, I'm, I'm planning some essays I want to write on some of different films. There's some new ones that I've seen that are actually old films, but my first time viewing them and that I've just it's kind of been revelations for me. And so I want to do some thinking on those and write some notes and maybe do some stuff for my blog about some of those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so how many uh, books are going to be in the Eucalyptus Lane series? Three. Or do you you know? (laughs) Well, 
so far, we know there are going to be three um, poser, and I'm at work on the second one now. And I've already planned for a third one that I pretty much know what's going to happen and how that one's going to end. And then there may be a fourth one okay. um, that I'm starting to think of. I can see the way to a fourth one as well. So probably at least three for sure, possibly four so far. We'll go from there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, what made you decide to write a, a series of books as opposed to like a, a standalone well, novel? Well, I planned it as a standalone novel. I thought, just let it be long. It can be a long. But then I started reading all this stuff about how if you're not a household name like Stephen King you know, or somebody like that, it's hard to get a really long novel published. Um, and so I thought, well, I know, you know, I know it goes up to you know, what I had planned so far, then I started realize, well, but it, there's going to be another one beyond this. So then I thought this will need to be a series. It's going to be too long for one novel. So I decided to make mm -hmm. it into a series. Well, with uh, any of the different types of um, writing that you do, whether it be screenplays, short stories, anything like that, you, uh, I guess you work full time as a professor? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So do you kind of have a writing schedule that you interweave in, into I your do. work schedule? Well, I interweave it wherever I can, but I do tend, <laughs> <laughs> I tend to stay up really late. Okay. Um, I write, you know, I do a lot of puttering around preparing to write other times of the day, but it seems like my best time for really writing is um, late at night when it's quiet. My schedule, I kind of, I take naps in the afternoon too <laughs> because I do stay up late. But I might kind of get things ready to write and rest a little bit. And then um, I'm a big fan of that show, the old show, Perry Mason. I don't know if mm -hmm. you know Perry Mason, oh, yeah. the lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. It comes on twice a day here on MeTV. <laughs> and, um, and so at night, I like to, after Perry Mason, I like to get settled down. And then I like to do, you know, at least like if I could do two or three hours of writing, that's fantastic. And then I'll just get to bed when I can. I get up. And go to work. And then usually by the time I come home, I'll eat a like, late lunch, early supper and take a nap and get ready to do it all again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you talk about Perry Mason. When I was younger, I used to watch Matlock. <laughs> oh, yes. Matlock was just on right now. I oh, like Matlock, it? too. Still comes yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's on MeTV. I don't know if you're familiar with that no, show. No, I'm not. Is that like <clears throat> it's a, streaming or is it on cable? It, cable? It's on, well, I think it's on cable. It's on TV. It's on our regular cable, but um, they show a lot of old shows late, late at night, which I'm usually writing. I need to record them, but like, they show things like Mannix and Cannon and Barnaby Jones, which I used to be, you know, watch that, Highway Patrol. Um, but I was at Austin Film Festival years, well, a few years ago, and Vince Gilligan, he, he was on a panel, so that several people were asking him questions, Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad, and he mm -hmm. talked about how he was a big fan of Perry Mason, and he said, I don't know if anybody's <laughs> heard of MeTV, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> um, but you know he he likes a lot of those old shows too. So I thought, well, that if that influenced him, that's a good influence. You know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Breaking Bad too. So I think of Breaking Bad's kind of an inspiration for um, you know, I, I'm inspired. I had started it before I saw Breaking Bad, but I just you know I'm a big fan of that. And sometimes I think when I first pitched uh, Poser, I said it it's like a Breaking Bad meets Desperate Housewives. I don't even know if anybody remembers a show called Desperate Housewives, yeah. where these women kind of got in 
uh, into difficult situations, but they had this kind of perfect little facade. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually filmed in that neighborhood where Leave It to Beaver was filmed. If you know Leave It to Beaver, I know Leave It to Beaver. I, yeah, that that was okay. where that show, the modern show, was filmed on that old set. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned writing at night. Is there something in particular, like just? kind of the days coming to an end it's dark outside yes. is, it, is it less distracting or yes it is more conducive, just to... more conducive to thinking <laughs> <laughs> um it's like blanche says in streetcar where they say well you always want to be where it's not lighted much and you like the dark she says yes i like the dark the dark is comforting to me um but there's something about i like to go on walks right right before sunset in the evening I love mornings too. It's hard to be a morning and a night person because I'd love to be both. <laughs> um, but there's something about evening fall and just kind of things kind of slowing down and it just kind of gets me ready to, you know, kind of settle down and do some writing. Yeah. Whenever I had uh, attempted, you know, I, I go back and forth. I attempt writing sometimes, you know, my studio here is very dark. I'm kind of hermetically sealed in here Ooh. but but uh, <laughs> i'm an flight monk i'm like ooh, that sounds nice <laughs> but uh i don't know the thing with me is i guess technically i'm a morning person because by six seven o'clock at night i'm brain dead as far as creativity is concerned uh-huh. so if i do any of that i try to get it done first thing a couple hours after i wake up and got some That's coffee great. In yeah because i love to write i love to get wired on coffee and write mm-hmm. and if i didn't stay up so late i would try to get up super super early and just drink lots of coffee and write x number of words you know and, all that. <laughs> but so, and sometimes i'm able to do that and i love it when i'm able to do that when i was in college I would get up super early and be one of the first ones at our local coffee shop. That's when I had first discovered a thing called cappuccino. Oh. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, that was just my dream come true was to get there early, get a big cup of cappuccino and just work on something that, you know, I really enjoyed working on for a couple hours. Then I would go to work at the bookstore and then go to class. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So writing. Working at a bookstore and then teaching. Yes. You are fully immersed in the craft. <laughs> <laughs> you have reached you have reached loop. critical mass. <laughs> I felt in a loop when I was working at a bookstore. I worked at LSU bookstore for off and on for several years and then I worked at a little bookstore in New Orleans for a while. But I always loved being in the know, what's out there and you know, and then I felt like, you know, not working at a bookstore, I feel like, you know, I see see books and I love to learn about new books, but I'm like I felt like I was just an inside and I knew what was what was going to be coming out, you know, what was going on with everything. And I would leave little reviews, you know, on the shelves, you know, some of my clerks, you know, that put little things about the books that they like, you know, and I could felt comfortable recommending books to people or recommending books for gifts. And now I'm like, I just got to get back in that book loop. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I've been reading a lot of indie authors lately, so most of my books have been coming from Amazon. Yeah. I'm kind of a shut-in anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm not at work, I just like to stay home. Yeah. But uh, what was about a couple, three weeks ago, something like that, I ended up at the mall. I had to return something for my fiance, and I passed by Barnes & Noble. <gasps> And I forgot how just like intoxicating. There you go. There you go. We were on the same page there. Yeah, I'm the same way. Just you walk in there, just surrounded. Yes. And when I was a kid, and when I would go to the mall, there. 
there used to be like B. Dalton, Walden books. Yeah, you know, I remember Walden books. All kinds of, and, and, and in addition to your other like indie bookstores, but now, you know, it's mostly like uh, Barnes and Noble, but still it's Barnes and Noble. It's fun to go and get lost in there and kind of lose track of time. <laughs> Have a coffee. <laughs> there was, and it's not open anymore. Sucks so bad. But there used to be a place in Houston called The Book Stop. Mm-hmm. And it was an old theater from the 50s or something like that. And uh, they still had the screen. Oh, wow. So upstairs where the balcony seats were, I guess the expensive seats where the mm-hmm. uh, the wealthy people sat. Yeah. It was just weird because you could tell where you were. Like, oh, oh I'm, wow. I'm up in the expensive seats looking through books, you know. Yeah. And you could look down and you could see the screen. Oh, how nice. They kept it as a yeah. theater. Yeah, but there, it's not not operational anymore, unfortunately. Well, speaking of that, like there was a bookstore like that in Palo Alto when I used to go there, and um, there were several like independent bookstores around there. But there was a Borders was like the big chain, you know. And now Borders, I don't think, is around any longer. But it, it was an old theater that they had made into a Borders bookstore with a coffee shop, and it had a whole downstairs with books, and then an upstairs with books that had probably been the balcony, but it didn't still have the screen or anything. But it had kind of that you know entrance, you know, walking in where you felt like you going through yeah. a lobby or something but mm-hmm. it's no more <laughs> yeah it's oh, unfortunate i know i always have the memories <laughs> i know i still treasure the memories yeah. of all bookstores past well so what is your writing atmosphere like do you have a designated spot I move around, but my favorite spot, well, somewhat. Sometimes I'll sit in the living room and I'll put on jazz music on the uh, on the cable. They have a channel for jazz. Um, and so I'll listen to that. It needs to be music that does not have lyrics or it'll distract me. Uh, but say things like Lionel Hampton, you know, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, all these, you know, Kind of like more jazz from the 50s and 60s. I love to, and, and some new jazz too. But that's the kind of music that I like to have in the background. I have a desk uh, here in my room where I'm talking to you from now. And I have kind of indirect lighting. Sometimes I like incense, uh, you know, and I just have the music. I leave the door open so I can hear the music. But that's usually where I do most of my writing. And then sometimes, like right now, if you could see my room, you would see lots and lots and lots of pages on the floor, all arranged in different <laughs> little kind of sections. And so I do sit on the floor sometimes so that I can look around and see stuff. Well, sometimes and you need a, a bigger desktop. <laughs> I need a bigger desktop. And so I've got a little stool. I'll put my computer on that and just be where I can look around and see things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. So like slow, kind of mellow jazz. Yeah, some, and then some of that uh, with, uh, I don't know, it's like vibraphone or marimba, that kind of jazz, I feel like, little notes, that kind of gets my brain going. It kind of. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you think about it, jazz is kind of a very, like, on-the-spot creative, you know, yes, they yes. go off key a lot, you know. Take uh, a weird, for, take a turn. It yeah. sounds kind of weird, but then it gets into its own groove, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I do love it. And I lived in New Orleans for about, I guess, pretty good while I guess about let's see 18 years or something like that but there used to be a jazz radio station WWOZ but they had an old kind of a what they call trad jazz show on Saturday mornings Big Pete you know um, and they would play a lot of the kind of jazz that that I like to play now so that kind of 
widen my scope and I got to know some other, they would have like all vinyl show on Sunday afternoon. I would listen to it like on singers and swing. Sometimes I listen to that too. And I see some of the same singers and it's like, it brings back my new Orleans memories, you know, some. (laughs) So you mentioned uh, you write on a computer. Yeah. Well, having said that I do, I type on a computer, but if I'm, if it's my very, very, very first draft, I like to write on either one of those yellow legal pads or just a, just any piece of paper. Um, I have a lot of those little notebook, like journal type notebooks that I fill up usually with my very first just initial notes and just, you know, jottings. And then I try to make sense of that. And then I type it on the computer. You know who does the same thing is uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. And I wonder. I love what Fight Club. It, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you broke the first rule. We don't talk about Fight I Club. I know. Should have said that. <laughs> but jumped uh, out of Fight Club. I know. <laughs> what is it you think about that? Starting off, I mean, is it more of a connection with your brain? You I know, think going- it is. I think it is, and that way, it's still so fluid. You know, and it's messy. I mean, some of my stuff, I change stuff like I'll start up here. I'll go to another part of the page. I'll write on the margins. I'll turn it over on the back. And I've got little arrows pointing everywhere. And it's chaotic, but it's still in that state of flux, you know, enough that you feel like I could change. It's so easy to change it. And then as you're typing it, you change it. And then you go back and change it some more and you edit and re-edit and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's the first it's brand new, fresh, and it's just, you know, still so, I don't know if this is the right word, malleable. You know, it's just, it's not etched, you know, it's never etched in stone, of course, but there's something about it, it still might change. It's like slapping paint on a canvas. I got to get something down and then I can take my little brushes and stuff and kind of move it around. Then I can start making recognizable shapes. Mm-hmm. But just to get something down, because some some scenes I find and and lately and I've just kind of just now this past week gotten some of these down, some of these scenes that it's like they won't get out of my mind. And I keep going over and over them. I'm like, I need to write that down. Maybe that'll make it so that I can move on to the next part. And so that's what I did. Um, And I know they're just very, very, very rough. And I know they're going to change as I kind of rework them and type them onto the computer. And that's fine. But I have something. (laughs) to work with so that's part you know just getting something down that you can chip away at yeah yeah i think the way he described it was when you type something on a computer it looks like a book so i think he was saying that the implication is okay if i'm transferring this story into this format that means i'm done and i'm ready for editing or whatever yes so i guess I guess it's a little too institutional to kind of foster his creativity yes, as he's going, I guess. I can I totally get that. That's true. I can see what he means. Yes. There's something about it being just in your handwriting on the paper, maybe only you're the only one that can read it at this point. Yeah. Nobody else could make sense of it. <laughs> Nobody else can make sense of it. And it's for your eyes only and it's very rough and it's not ready to be seen. But when you start to type it up, it starts to like yeah, it starts to look like something people mm. will read. <laughs> um and it but you there's it's still wet clay, I guess. Yeah. When you write it on hand. Yeah, that's it. a good way to describe it. Wet it's wet clay. clay. It hasn't mm. started to harden. When you start to get it on the computer, 
you start to see it kind of begins to dry out and you still have to punch at it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, since you mentioned that you pretty much kind of know what the next at least two books, what's going to happen. Yeah. But you're also a uh, professor that teaches creative writing, correct? Yes, yes. So I'm trying to guess. I would assume maybe because of that, you are a detailed outliner. Well, I used to be more of a pantser. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I am sometimes, but I think with um, screenwriting, you know, there is a, like a, a structure. You know, there has to be a recognizable structure, which there is in most things that you don't realize until you learn more about structure. But screenwriting made me learn more about structure. And um, with fiction, um, since this one does have a lot of this story and, you know, the characters, there's a lot of interconnections. This one has a lot of moving parts. And so I have an outline that I've been staring at for about two or three weeks, but I've been moving things around and I leave room for discovery because these characters do surprise me. And so I do have an outline, but I'm not averse to changing things up, even if I have an outline and kind of moving things around. And that's why I have all these little sections of pages because I do move things around and something new might come about or some character might make a left turn but it's true to character and so i have to follow and see where that goes and then if it stays and that'll be a part of that outline you know so it it changes everything's malleable including the outline (laughs) yes but it does help it helps to have a roadmap but that doesn't mean you can't take a different little side detour yes exactly (laughs) oh there's something let's stop and look at that yeah Yeah. (laughs) roadside attraction Uh take my picture yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, so tell me about your publisher, Outcast Press. Yes. Um, well, they're an independent press and they specialize in transgressive fiction. And so I think they're trying to create or they have created a space for things that maybe wouldn't fit in, you know, to a lot of the more mainstream or the big publishers. And so I'm grateful that they took a chance on Poser because I know that it crosses genres. It's kind of hard to say it's this one thing. Um, And so they took a chance on it. And I'm really grateful to them. And I think they're publishing other authors who maybe have either very transgressive or more unconventional stories. And I think that's great. And I, um, I really appreciate their work. And I'm looking forward to reading some of the other authors that they're publishing as well, too. I've read some of them and there's some new ones, uh, some new books coming out this summer and I believe next fall. So, yeah, I was looking at at least one of them in my queue. What is this? Mm-hmm. Crooked Smile, Jack Moody. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was thinking about trying that one out. Yeah, I think that's. It's fictional, but I think it has some autobiographical elements. Um, And, you know, so, yes, I have that one, too. And there's some others. Let's see. I've read um, Sean McCallum's um, The Recalcitrant Stuff of Life, I think, was the first novel they published, I believe. Was it last fall or the fall before? But anyway, that's um, one of theirs. And then um, Manny Torres, who writes a lot of great noir, um, they did his latest one, Paris Malice, you know, and... See, and then they just did a new one. I think L.G. Thompson, I want to say, and Austin Davis is a book of poetry they've done. And I may be leaving some out, but their publishing schedule is kind of picking up. So the next Eucalyptus Lane novel, I believe, is set to come out uh, next spring. So um, so they're moving and shaking. And um, I really like the work that they're doing. And I'm glad that they're creating this space for authors of transgressive fiction. 
which includes noir. Yeah, I really like the um, aesthetic of the website and their their choice of authors. That's mm-hmm. like it, it's almost like if I had the chance to do something, that's something that I would kind of aim for. So mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to ask you about them. So we've talked about your novel quite a bit, but you also do many other things in the writing sphere. So (laughs) could you tell me about your short stories? Yes, I don't have as many short pieces. I tend to write in longer format as far as like feature screenplays and things like that. My short screenplay that I wrote um, a few years ago called Root of All Evil, it's about these two girls kind of, you know, with checkered past to uh, meet this preacher with a checkered past. Um, and so I directed that as a short film and I played one of the girls in it. And it was one of the most fun things I've ever done. And also one of the hardest things I've ever done. Oh, yeah. oh getting out and making a film is very, very difficult, but it gives you a whole new respect for filmmakers, filmmaking, a whole indie especially. Um, but it, part of the thing is just, you know, I can see why if you're a big studio or something like that, you can control the environment, control the set. Cause we were out, out on streets and um, we were in a bar during part of the scene and we used my apartment for part of <laughs> one of the scenes. And so it's easier if you're in an enclosed space, but when you're outside, you know, and then it rains, then the sun comes back out. It's like, wait, there's rain on the cars. Now the sun's out, mm. you know, continuity. We were oh, out there flying. God. I just think, and then, then it becomes a spectacle. Then everybody wants to ride by and see what's right over. But it was just crazy. And I, granted, I didn't close off that street because I thought people aren't going to be going down this little side street. But when they see a bunch of people with a camera and a boom mic and stuff, Photo they're going to go down that street. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, but it was a wonderful adventure. We had a good time with it, but it was a lot of hard work. Um, and then um, I have written, um, I have a, a short story now that I'm working on. I'm trying to kind of wrap up. And um, it's like with short stories, it seems like I can get into it. I can get it started, but um trying to put a satisfactory ending. And then I wonder, I think about that quote from the Simpsons where, um, who was it? Some one of the family members says, so this is a happy ending, right? And Marge says, well, it's an ending. That's enough. Um, it's <laughs> um, but I admire, but that's why I like people like Flannery O'Connor or just, I mean, a lot of the great short story writers out there now that are submitting to indie or lit mags and that, I mean, that come up with so much short material. I think that's really hard to do short stories well. A short play I was commissioned to do a few years ago. That may be one of my favorite pieces. And it was based on a um, a little comic series I was doing at the time. I was supposed to write a short play based on things that you should never flush down the toilet. It was based on student <laughs> research here at Georgia College. Uh-huh. And uh, the environmental, uh, I think it was G.C. Green organization there at the college and the Department of Theater and Dance commissioned me to come up with a short play for like a conference and then we it's been they did it for earth day several times and then uh, i took it and, and showed the taped presentation at a kind of sustainability conference but my comic series is set in a little small town like the one i'm from in south georgia and so i thought how do you do this like as a narrative because i looked up some stuff on it and it's like you know things you should things that you shouldn't flush down the toilet i thought <laughs> how to make this into a story and i thought well you know It'll be the family that's in this series that um, 
you know, some of them, there's the grandmother lives there or the mother lives there in the house. And the, the young couple it has their trailer right outside her house. And somebody stopped up the plumbing and the toilet. Who did? They're all <laughs> angry at each other, pointing fingers at it's each other. It's a who other. done it. It's a who done it. And so, and then they get into what everybody, tank. yeah, what people, what everybody's been flushing down the toilet that should not be in the toilet. And it was, you know, it's kind of like a public service announcement, but I wanted it. They, they wanted it to be funny and kind of have a narrative. It's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale, and it's kind of like those shows, like if you know Carol Burnett, like the old Mama's oh, Family yeah. and stuff, mm-hmm. and it's like a mix of that and Green Acres, and then just kind of a crazy, just you know, scenario. But um, but I think it's it's like something that could happen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Who stopped up the toilet? How much is it going to cost? We don't get paid till the end of the month. How are we going to get it fixed? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, we got into okay. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff we got into. Chicken bones. Oh, yeah. Small pets. Small pets? Oh, yeah, burial, people, burial at sea? Exactly. Yeah, pet yeah. dies? Okay. It, may, it may return yeah. be buried yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. May come back from the grave. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've interviewed a uh, a previous author that, excuse me, author that had mm-hmm. uh, written a novel, but said that they weren't good at writing short stories. Mm-hmm. They said it was like really hard for them to put all the elements of a good story into such a you know. I agree. Small I think that's. Frame. I think that's the case for me in a lot of ways. So, would you say that short stories are harder than novels? I think they are. <laughs> I had a professor one time. I was working on a, a novel, like one of my very very first novels, which. Um, had kind of like the dysfunction, which a lot of my stuff has the dysfunctional family dynamic. Um, like so there's one of my graphic novels, Uptowners, that definitely has that. But yeah, I just, I, I have a hard time with it. I think I get so involved with the family dynamics and the interrelationships and all this. It's hard for me to, it keeps expanding. And for short story, you just, it really does have to be succinct. You have to, you have to do a lot with so few words, which is true also of screenwriting in many ways. But Flannery O'Connor, you know, I mentioned her earlier, but she started out, her plan was to write novels. I mean, well, she started out as a cartoonist Mm -hmm. and then um, she she got out of that because um, it turned out to to do that. I think at University of Iowa, she was going to have to be in journalism. And she, according to one documentary called Uncommon Grace, she went to the director of the writing program and said, I'm not a journalist. Yeah, you know, I want to get in the writing program. And she had to write that down because he couldn't understand her thick Southern accent. So she had to write <laughs> that down. I want to get in the writing program. Um, but she started out, um, you know, thinking she would, that would be her thing that she would eventually, you know, be a novelist. And it just wasn't, I think her, her shorts, her novels weren't as well received, but her short stories are just, I mean, she can do like a perfectly self-contained short story and she's like she picks just the right details and things like that. And I think some people are just really adept at that. With mine, I tend to go into detail. I tend to want to go back into history, which I hadn't realized since writing screenplays, you can't really do a lot of that. But once I mean, if I get really get into the characters, if I really get interested in the characters and their lives and backgrounds, it's like, you know, I find that I can do that with the novel. And that's just something you don't really get to do um, in short stories so much to such a great length. And with screenplays, it all has to be visual and you have to put it into symbolism and, you know, things like that. So does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost like, 
trying to get changed in a really small room, you know, you, yeah. you, you, need, you need room to stretch out and get everything fleshed yeah, out properly. So, but it's like, no, no, you only got this amount of space. Yeah. 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 And it, I can see how it takes a lot of discipline. And uh, I have a lot of respect for people who are great short story writers and who are really good at that difficult task. <laughs> Well, so you kind of answered my next question. You were talking about some of your screenplays and one that you were working on shooting as a short film. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I was curious about because I saw on your website you have multiple screenplays listed and, mm-hmm. and a lot of awards you've won mm-hmm. for them. So I wasn't sure, is that just something you do to submit to contests or do you have them actively like – well? Uh, performed on stage i would love to i've always wanted to have a staged reading of one of my screenplays um i left new orleans i was kind of working on that i didn't get a chance to do that before i left new orleans and there were some places that were kind of starting to do that but that's the aim is to have them eventually you know on a screen Mm -hmm. Uh, but but oh yeah i guess did i say on stage i meant on on screen but still but well (laughs) but still i mean well that's a Having now that you said that, um, at Austin Film Festival, um, a couple of years ago or a few years ago, there was a whole panel on stage plays. I mean, a lot of the people who are writing for TV now had started out as playwrights, and it's my understanding that they're looking for playwrights, you know, people who, um, are good at dramatic writing and things like that from the stage. Um, and there are whole categories now for stage plays at the film festivals where it used to be more. Screenplay, you know, feature screenplay, short screenplay, pilot episodes, you know, or spec scripts for, for TV. And now there's uh, stage plays, um, podcasts and things like that, which I guess would be like the fiction podcast, maybe thing. But, um, you know, so that's expanding. But um, I would love it. Like I've seen staged readings where they just do the voices and everything, but it's good for screenwriters. It gives them a chance to see how it looks up on its feet and have people speaking those roles. Usually somebody does the narrator that reads the description. Uh, and I would love that. I want to do that someday or have that done with some of my scripts. But in the meantime, I guess, I mean, I submit a lot of them to contests to try to get them out there into the world, because that's one thing that's really and I've seen other writers talk about this really hard with screenplays. You submit them to screenplay contests and maybe to production companies or you know agents and other things. But other than that, they don't really get seen unless they get made into a movie. And that's mm-hmm. a really tall order. Um, that can take a really long time to get made into a movie if ever. And so, um, you know, so, but I just, like I said, the, the screenplay for Poser, um, the original, I mean, it it more or less ended, well, I don't want to be a spoiler, but it more or less ended where the first major plot point where things change all around for Mm -hmm. Ambrose and Jessica. And then it goes on from there. And, um, I was like, gosh, you know, this is, <laughs> I still got, you know, a lot more story. I need to, you know, it just, it seemed like it needed more. And now that I've discovered these other characters and other storylines, it's just, I think it's found the best format for it. Uh, but I still am working on the the pilot for it. I, I think it would be a good TV series. Um, and I'm still going to keep, you know, working on that. I've got that in some contests and I'm going to keep entering contests, but I think just for the home for it right now as a novel, I think works the best for it. So I wasn't sure 
I, you know, I Googled like an image search, so I don't know how accurate it was, but I was curious to know what the format of a screenplay looked like. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it looks kind of like a specific type of outline. It is. It's an industry standard format. And so okay. um, when I first took screenwriting as part of my English major, I had to take one more upper level class. I didn't really want it. I wanted to keep in fiction. I didn't really want to take screenwriting, but I had to take it. And I thought, that format's going to be tricky to learn, you know, and uh, that's going to be hard to work in. But once I learned the format, I liked it a lot because it actually freed me to tell my stories the way I wanted to. I think I hadn't really, I was still searching for my prose voice and I love to write dialogue. I love to come up with characters and it just had those things in it. I love the format. Once I learned it, I got used to it. And then it was hard going from that format to prose because there's so much blank space on a page for screenplay um, and you're filling all that in. So I think the screenplay I had for Poser, the feature screenplay, it did OK in contests. I mean, it did. It got some good comments and, um, you know, it placed. And now I feel like, you know. It's because there was a lot more to that story that needed to go into it. And, you know, so I think it's it's doing better as a novel and where I can explore more storylines, you know, like you could with a, a TV series. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's two different things. And it's like um, and I've had people tell me, oh, well, just adapt it, you know, adapt one of your screenplays into a stage play. But it's just when you're adapting anything from one form to another. I mean, I tried doing that. I think I even sat down first to try to do poser as a stage play, which it, I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but it's like, I just can't do this right now. It's just, you really have to, you can't just think I'm just going to change it into something else. You have to really think of it as something brand new because it is, it's so different. Mm -hmm. So. That's surprising to me because my assumption was is because you have this format that you're kind of working within that the creative process would kind of get cramped. But you said mm -hmm. it kind of frees you up. Yeah. And I was shocked. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I am I. <laughs> because um, it is. I mean, it's a very I don't know is the word prescribed. I mean, it, it's it has to be a certain way. I mean, you have to format it the way that the industry wants it formatted or it shows that you're not taking the time to learn, um, you know, how they how they want to see things. And a lot of it has to do with, well, if you have a 120 page screenplay, general rule of thumb, that's each page equals a minute of screen time. Although I have heard people say it depends on the kind of scene it is. Um, Steve Soderbergh, I saw him. He came to LSU to speak one time. He graduated from there um, and he had just with the success of Sex, Lies and Videotape when I first came to LSU. He was kind of coming back to do speeches because he had just, you know, kind of made a big splash with that film before he did a lot of his others. Um, but he talked about how, you know, it's really longer. Like try to keep your page count shorter because it runs longer than you think. Um, and so, um, you know, I've always tried to keep that in mind because I like I said, I tend to run longer on things. <laughs> um, but then you follow a structure and it kind of tends to fit into that screenplay size, you know, or page count. But as far as getting into, like you were saying at the beginning, about getting into people's interior, what they're thinking and their flashbacks and how things, you know, things that they're stressing over. I mean, that all has to be on the screen. And so it's it can be difficult to put that 
in a screenplay. It has to, but it has to be on the screen. Um, and so there's just a lot of differences, but I've enjoyed um, with these characters, maybe because I've, I've kind of been working with these characters for a long time. Um, I enjoyed getting in, delving into those aspects of, of them, you know, in the prose, in the novel. Well, tell me about your graphic novels. Yeah. Is it, uh, <laughs> see, it's not an art form that I'm really familiar with. Well, the thing that made me want to do graphic novels was when I made my short film based on the short script. I storyboarded it. Um, I printed out some storyboard paper <laughs> and mm -hmm. I storyboarded it and it was little more than stick figures. And um, I thought, well, you know, my screenplay, like I was saying, screenplays don't really get out and see the world very much, you know, unless if you adapt them to another format, unless they get made into a movie. But I thought, wow, I could direct this on paper and, you know, I could do set design and wardrobe and all uh -huh. this for these characters. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try it. I used to draw a lot and I hadn't do, done a lot of drawing in recent years, but I had to get back in a groove. And it took me over five years to do my first graphic novel. It was completely hand drawn. On, kitchen sink. You know, I didn't use any um, technology per se. I used pen and ink and all that. But um, it kind of made me notice people and quirks and just looking at people and looking at backgrounds and looking at, you know, your surroundings. I think it kind of sharpens your eye toward that. And I could put the dialogue in dialogue balloons and things like that. And it pretty much follows the screenplay I had for that um, story. Um, but back to Flannery O'Connor one more time. I remember um, if you go out to Andalusia, her farm, if you come to Milledgeville, you can visit um, where she used to live out there. And she uh, kept a lot of peacocks and she would do paintings of like bird, you know, her with her birds or she would do all kinds of paintings. And she said that a lot of writers that she knew painted um, not because they were really any good at painting, but because it made <laughs> them look at things closer. I think that's true. I think that through um, drawing Drawing characters and things for my graphic novel and even just like if they're on a street corner, just picking out the little, especially in New Orleans, there's so much going on. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of different from most other major cities. And there's a lot of quirkiness and people just accept that. It's just it's just New Orleans. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it, it made me when I was riding through town, I would look at things closer. I would look at people closer. And, um, you know, my husband would say, that looks like one of your characters. That girl, that was <laughs> not one of your characters. That's like an outfit one of your characters. Would um, and so, but I think, you know, just kind of even, even if you're just dabbling in another art form, I think there's a lot of interconnectedness, how you can tap into aspects of creativity just with, you know, just trying out another art form. Um, but I did, I did, um, so far I've done two kind of longer graphic novels. One of them is based on my screenplay. That's, a, um, a gay teen romance set in the rural South of the 1950s. It's called Piano Lessons. And so I had to study like cars and I look at hairstyles and, you know, things from the 1950s for that one. And then um, the other one is kind of a spinoff of uh, Uptowners called Queensgate, and it's set in London. So I had to go back and look at old pictures I had when I visited London or pictures of London, you know, and things like that. So that got really tricky. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I would draw and do little collages from photographs that I had and put that in the background, but draw my characters in the foreground. So. Well, so other than dabbling in it when you were a kid, no classical training in, in art, drawing, anything like that? No. Just <laughs> just, in, just like to draw. Um, and, you know, my dad likes to draw. Um, but I just, you know, 
I thought, and I, my first efforts at trying to draw people so that I would have recognizable characters was was not very good. It's just a lot of practice and trial and error. Um, and it's That's like those, cool. yeah. that, that was one of the questions. I was like, did you do the artwork? <laughs> I did do the artwork. And um, you can see difference from my first graphic novel to the most recent one I did a few years ago. Um, but I think they're different. Yeah. It's like with the Simpsons, the old Simpsons look yeah, different from the new yeah. Simpsons. It's like, these are so different, but you can kind of recognize them as being these same characters. I think I did get better the more I did it, but it took a long time. It was really, really, really <laughs> time consuming. And, um, but it was a labor of love. I wanted to do it. Um, I enjoyed a lot of things about it, just kind of making it come alive on a page. And so it was, uh, it was worth the effort. Yeah. <laughs> and it does, awesome. I think it does make you look at things closer and things like that. So I yeah. mean, it, it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. Check those out now. Now that I know you did the artwork, I really I'm interested to see them now. Well, thank you. I've got to get back. I'm do do some painting too, and I'm doing some of that now. But I need to get back. I've been kind. I like to do kind of sketches sometimes and things like that. Gets it's hard to stay in the groove of drawing if you don't do it every day. It's like a lot of other things, but it's it's hard to hard to keep juggling, hard to keep everything in the air. (laughs) <laughs> all, all your juggling balls in the air when you're trying to do different projects. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm pretty focused on um, the second Eucalyptus Lane novel right now, but someday I'll return and do the part three of a graphic novel that I started. that was a three-parter. Did you do the artwork <laughs> for Poser? For Poser, for what? The, um, the, cover? the cover? No, mm-hmm. that was Cody Sexton of A Thin Slice of Anxiety. Um, and he did that. And I'm just, uh, well, he, in conjunction with Sebastian by Set Outcast Press and Paige Johnson, um, uh, that uh, Cody, you know, created the cover. And it's just, I'm, I really like that cover. I'm a big fan of it. If you look at it closely, you can see it's got barbed wire uh, on it. And I like the color combination. I'm big on silhouette portraits, too. Um, and I had discussed some of that with Cody, some things I had done just for to go with some of my um, snippets and quotes and stuff. And, and he looked at that. and um, But he just, I think, knocked it out of the park with the cover. I was really excited about it. Still am. Well, so I've got your, your academic pedigree here. Make sure to correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. But I've got... Uh, <laughs> You have a bachelor's degree in English and creative writing mm-hmm. and a master's degree in screenwriting. And both mm-hmm. of those are from LSU at Baton yeah, Rouge, yeah. correct? Yes. Okay. Well, so when did you realize that you wanted to make writing your life's task, basically, and well, not only become a writer, but also teach it? Well, I didn't know. It's like I was um, I went to school at Valdosta State for two years before I transferred out to LSU. I got married. My husband mm-hmm. was going back to LSU. And um I started out in a couple of other majors and I thought, well, I like to write, but I don't know, do I want to major in that? And I thought, well, let me take a creative writing class and see how, see how it goes, you know, because um, I was kind of changing up again. Uh, But I always loved writing since I was like 10 years, you know, well, sixth grade, I think I wrote my first story. But um, I just, I took this creative writing class with this professor um, who he was kind of, I don't know. He was getting ready to retire, and I wish he had been there longer after I became a creative writing major. His name was Warren Eister, and he was a novelist. And he had also been a line editor at Random House. 
And um, he had uh, played cards with Hemingway in Mexico. He had spent a lot of time there. And I think he had taught up at University of Virginia and um, just done lots of different things, been a lot of different places. And um, he was just kind of just really common sense, just, I mean, very honest, you know, with his comments and his uh, notes on my stories and the people in the class. Um, I thought, well, how's it going to be? It's, you know, I haven't really workshopped anything. And it was the workshops. People weren't just, you know, I mean, they weren't overly critical. They weren't overly crazy. They were just very candid. And I felt like when I came out of those classes, I felt like I was energized to write more. And I was like, I feel like I have something to work with to really, you know, improve and make it better. And it was constructive. And Dr. Eister kept it on a very, you know, let's keep it constructive. Let's don't make personal remarks. Um, but anyway, it was some of the best writing workshops. And that made me decide I'm going to go ahead and just major in this. Um, and so, um, and I, I went from there and I, I did a, a novel kind of as a, like an, undergraduate thesis, I guess. Um, but then he retired. I really missed him a lot after that. But, um, you know, I kind of went on with creative writing and then I got my master's. And when I moved to New Orleans, I started teaching as an adjunct and I was teaching a lot of composition, you know, English 101. But then um, at this community college right outside New Orleans, um, where I ended up staying uh, for a long time, Nunez Community College um, said, well, teach, you know, kind of design. I think they had maybe offered creative writing one time, um, but they were like, just make it what you want to make you know, for creative writing. Here's a kind of a master syllabus, you know, some, some things to, to hit. But um I really enjoy teaching creative writing and I like giving people kind of a chance to sample the different types of writing, fiction, nonfiction. We go over the elements and kind of the, you know, I don't, I don't say rules, but <laughs> you got to know the rules to break them kind of thing. But, yeah. um, but now when I teach creative writing, um, we kind of explore, we look at examples of each genre, each type and just kind of, I, uh, they do a portfolio where they get to, um, you know, kind of try out different types of writing. Sometimes, um, people are already write, doing their own writing stories or poetry. Um, a lot of people are writing poetry and which I admire that because I find poetry kind of intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, we have a good time and we, uh, we talk and workshop and, you know, kind of have a lot of, in-depth discussions about lots of different things and then connect it back to our writing. So, Well, what is the life of Nevada McPherson like outside of writing? Well, oh gosh. Or is that just, <laughs> does that just consume you? Yeah. I'll throw a, a topic your way. Tell me about your fur baby Mitzi. Baby Mitzi is a little rescue chihuahua, and um, she's my muse. Well, she's with me usually when I'm writing. She likes to sit in my lap or at least sit on a pillow next to me or something, and she's just kind of a steadying presence. But she actually, going back to Nunes Community College, I was sitting in my husband's speech class. People were telling Halloween stories one day, and some students came in with this cute little puppy. And I thought, oh, well, after the Halloween stories, I guess they're going to give a speech about their puppy. Isn't it adorable? And one of them came over and put this puppy in my lap and said, this is your dog. Will you hold this dog for me? I said, sure. And he said, that's your dog. And I said, what? <laughs> oh, cut, like, don't. You're fun in me. <laughs> and he said, no, he said, we found this dog out behind, you know, one of their, one of the students' grandparents' house and they couldn't find out who it belonged to. It didn't have a chip. 
and um, they were going to try to adopt it, and um, it didn't get along with their dogs, and they remembered that my husband and I had said that we would love to have a tiny little dog, and they said, this dog needs a home. If you don't take her, we were on our way to the pound, and we remembered that you had said you want a tiny little dog, and I was like, well, leave the little dog with me by all means, (laughs) and we still didn't know if somebody would come along and say, that's my little dog, but nobody did, and so it became our little dog, and we've had her for over 10 years now. And um, so she, but she was very on her own, kind of fending for herself uh, when she was, uh, you know, five months old. Um, and we think she escaped from somewhere. Maybe um, there was a rumor there might have been puppy mills, you know, around. But um, we think she escaped from somewhere during a hurricane because right before that, there'd been a really bad hurricane with a lot of power outages, a lot of high winds and a lot of just kind of general disarray in the whole area. So we uh, and she showed up in this kind of in the woods behind this house after that. and was just kind of mm-hmm. on her own. But we love her very much. She has a very, she's pretty social. You know, a lot of chihuahuas, people say, are one-person dogs. But she likes to spend time with myself and my husband. And she likes to get out and visit and socialize. And she's a sweet little dog. <laughs> well, so I saw you described yourself as a cinephile. Can you yeah, tell me yeah. about your, we talked a little bit about film, but like mm-hmm. if you, if you had a, a night in with your husband and you guys wanted to watch something, what would, uh, oh, I, well, I do love the old black and white film noir, you know, mm-hmm. the movies. I love those. I love old movies in general and I do love old black and white movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like, um, as far as just you know, in general, I like character driven, like with my screenplays tend to be, I like character driven films. Um, I don't always go for the big special effect types, extravaganzas. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to like Over more. The top. <laughs> yeah, I tend to like more interpersonal relationship kind of movies. Um, and I like independent film. And um, there were, um, I'm trying to think of some of the movies from the '90s that um, kind of fit into that. That when when we were out in Palo Alto, there was a a film a theater called the Stanford Theater, of which I'm a big fan. Um, and they show movies from the classic, like classic Hollywood movies. And then there was a little independent theater, like a landmark uh, theater that showed a lot of art house films. And um, since we didn't have a TV in our room, first couple of years we were there, but we would go out and see a lot, a lot of movies. And so I get to see that's that I credit that with kind of helping me learn how to appreciate movies in their intended format on the big screen was going to the Stanford theater to see good classic Hollywood films and then um, going to like the Aquarius. And then in New Orleans, there were a lot of neighborhood theaters back in the day in New Orleans, and there's still some of them left. Um, but especially the Britannia theater uh, near where I used to live in New Orleans, but um, you know, just a kind of art house fair or kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and I'm trying to think, I mean, just for some favorite movies I could name that I tend to, to show and discuss with my classes too. I'm a big fan of the original Bonnie, well, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, Fade Dunaway and um, Warren Beatty. Sunset Boulevard is one of my all-time favorite movies as well, which is my other novel manuscript is about Eric von Stroheim, who played the butler in Sunset Boulevard. And that's what he was most afraid he would be remembered for because he wanted to be remembered <laughs> for his directing. Mm. Um, but he's a, he was a very controversial figure in Hollywood. He would make these really long movies. Um, and then uh, by the time he, he kind of decided to, well, play by Hollywood rules as the producers got to hold more influence in Hollywood, 
he had kind of angered all the major studios. So I did a lot of research on him when I was getting ready for a class where we were going to be watching and talking about Sunset Boulevard. And I just became fascinated with his whole life and times. And I'm really interested in silent Hollywood era as well. Um, but I'm a big fan of um, William Holden. And so he's in Sunset Boulevard. And then um, an older William Holden uh, in Network. I really like that movie Network. A lot of movies from the the seventies, which I get, you know, with the neo noir kind of going forward from there too. Um, and for editing, sometimes I'll show like Run Lola Run, which is one of my favorite ones from the the nineties. And then I'm trying to think of some more recent ones. I just haven't been out to see as many movies recently. I guess there, you know, I see some of the ones that come here to the theater. The late, the last movie I saw was Elvis by Boz Lerman. Mm, yeah. I and remember I, you posting about yeah, that. Yeah. I wrote, did a post about that. And, um, and I really enjoyed that. It was good to get out and see a movie on the big screen again, after all the COVID, you know, yeah. things have just been kind of different. Everybody's been kind of focused more on smaller screens. and so, Um, but you know, but I, I, I'm looking forward to getting out and seeing some more films and getting, catching up. Like I was saying, I felt like when I worked in the bookstore, I was more in the loop with what's going on, you know, more, uh, with books. It's like, uh, I, w- I want to get out and see some movies again and get back into the, you know, the current movie scene as well. So, but like I said, I, since I don't go for a lot of the big special effects, I, 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 I seek out, you know, kind of the more smaller independent things. So I like that. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you, Nevada. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I've had so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So as we uh, bring the show to a close, is there any media or upcoming projects you want to plug? Well, just be on the lookout for um, the next Eucalyptus Lane novel next mm-hmm. spring. Um, and I do want to start, I had meant to start earlier, I do want to start kind of a video series where I do some, maybe some short readings um, from my own and others' work. Um, and maybe maybe talk a little bit about some movies. Um, I have a little short mini course, like a little short, um, very short, like noir, film noir, if you want to get more into that. Um, if you, you know, t- talking about it, um, on my website that you can sign up for. Um, and I want to develop more things like that, you know, where we can maybe, maybe online discuss some films. Uh, and so, but, um, uh, I also post, uh, book reviews and I'll be posting some more film reviews and essays at my backstage blog on my website too. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining me on the show and I look forward to your upcoming content. Oh, well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, and I really, really appreciate you having me here. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and follow the show on Instagram and YouTube. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Only these four walls could talk More than just a little tipsy He got me wise so I won't talk Hey there girl, give me a cup I don't think it's strong enough You're thinking about it way too much